This season of Black and White is brought to you by Flatiron Wealth Management. Led by my good friend Andrew Shepard, Flatiron Wealth Management is an independent wealth management firm that is committed to building generational wealth for their clients. By constantly optimizing and diversifying its investment strategies, Flatiron helps you influence the economic factors that you can and to prepare for the ones you can't. Visit flatironwealth.com for more information. Link in the podcast description. Welcome back to Black and White, a rallying place where we come together to learn and hold everyone gently to account. A podcast for the ally in all of us. I'm your host, Stephen Dorsey. Black and White is recorded in Toronto, Canada, on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. My guest today is Agapi Jassese, the Executive Director of the Careers Empowerment Education Center for Young Black Professionals, a charity dedicated to addressing economic and social barriers affecting Black youth ages 14 and over. Their activities focus on youth workforce development, education, and advocacy to influence systems and policy, a key organization addressing the necessary need to develop talent pipelines for Black professionals. I can't tell you how important all of that is. Agapi, welcome to Black and White. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Awesome. Well, great to have the opportunity to sit with you in conversation, uh, especially you are one of the busiest people that I know. So (laughs) to get you actually in one spot, you and I have talked, you're running through train stations, airports, you know, it's like... uh, I'm trying to find myself too. I'm trying to find time for myself. Yeah. (laughs) But it's a good thing because you're really pushing hard on all fronts to make change happen. So I think that's super positive. So one of the reasons I wanted to to sit down and and have a conversation with you today, Agapi, was really looking forward to actually understand what you're doing on the front lines, you know, creating opportunity reaching into the Black community to develop the pool of talent to feed what, you know, everyone's calling this the diversity uh, pipeline, where we're trying to have more diverse and inclusive representation of Black professionals in the business world. So maybe you can start by telling me, like, what are we talking about and why is this critical and super important? For sure. Uh, I think, number one, we would have to go back to the inception of C and the inception of C is now we've been around for 10 years. And so before we were even having this very large DNI conversation, C existed. And really the way that it came about was uh, out of what was known as the summer of the gun at the time. Um, we've had many since, unfortunately, but in 2005, we had the summer of the gun. Gun violence was rampant in the city of Toronto. That was the year that Jane Kriba was unfortunately shot and killed outside of the Eaton Center. And that really was a rally call for government 
And so the United Way and the Ontario government came together to create what they called the Youth Challenge Fund. And that was really a series of initiatives that would be able to support youth leadership trying to find solutions for the issues that they were facing. By the way, Agape, just to orient the audience, so the horrible incident you're talking about is really a a gun violence scenario where someone just indiscriminately shot across the street in the direction of one of the the largest mall in Toronto and uh, I believe killed a young girl. Yes. We're talking about in Toronto hundreds of gun-related murders in a city of 7 million people. So I just want to give context. Yes, it's a huge number. And unfortunately, it's only gotten worse since then. But at that moment in time, that was a very critical point for us as a society, particularly because guns are not as easily accessible as they are south of the border. Uh, We have really strong gun controls here. And so gun violence being at that peak at that time was really shocking for folks. Uh, Particularly also, gun violence has always existed in our communities, but that was a moment in time where it came outside of our community, right? It was a very, outside the Eden Center is, you know, that's like our Times Square, right? And so imagine a shooting in Times Square, like that's that's the magnitude of it, right? And so the gun violence seeped into the streets. And I think that's where it became shocking and government and folks decided that we need to do something about it. And so that is the inception of C, is really came out of of understanding that we were in crisis mode and something needed to be done. And so the co-founders, Shireen Ashman and Kofi Hope, both of them really went into community and spent an entire year just asking young people, what is it that other organizations are not offering you that we can offer to make things different? So that's where C Center for Young Black Professionals kind of emerged from, was really just listening to young people about what was it that they needed in order to make a change in the trajectory of their lives and for them to see hope and opportunity rather than uh, being able to move to the streets and seeking what their future can look like there. And so that's the essence of where we're coming from. And so the importance of this is that, you know, here we are 10 years later and we're not in any better shape than we were. But one thing that I will say is that I think that an organization like C, we are a series of learned lessons over time. And so what we did identify very early, and that is something that we've honed in on and stayed true to, is relationship is needs to be at the center of the work that we do and really focusing on life stabilization. What does your housing look like? What is your food security? Well, who are your friends? Who are your family? Who's your support system? Because the reality is if people don't have a stable home situation or their food security, all of those things, those life stabilization pieces, if they're not there, then it's very hard for you to think about finding a job or where you see your career. Exactly. Well, this is the part, you know, when we talk about people talk about white privilege and I've, I, as you know, I put in my book, I call it white advantage, right? Yeah. All there's this advantage that black people, people of color and indigenous people have just to get to the starting line of many things. Oh, totally. From a health perspective, from a food insecurity, from poverty, from uh, terrible housing, et cetera. Completely. And also, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know what jobs are available if you don't see those things in your community. If you you don't know where some of our young people at times have never left their communities. They've never gone downtown Toronto to explore. 
So exposure is a huge part of the work that we do at sea, because if you haven't been able to see it, then you don't even know that it exists to be able to dream it. Absolutely. So what did they tell you 10 years ago? And what did you put in place to address some of those things through your program? So there's three very distinct approaches that we take at sea. Number one is a person-centered approach looking. So we have full-time social workers on staff that look at what your housing is like, what's your food security, all of those life stabilization pieces. And to think of a plan, not only while they're in program, but also as they're entering into their careers. Is the career that you're, you think you want to join, is that actually conducive to the lifestyle that you want to live? Is that, do you have children? Is it a shift work? Is it, you know, is that going to fit into the lifestyle that you want to live for yourself? The second approach that we take is a trauma-informed approach, recognizing that by virtue of being a Black person anywhere in the world, really, but specifically in North America, you're experiencing a level of trauma that other folks don't need to think about. There's things that you need to constantly be thinking about in your mind as you're entering into rooms, as you're maneuvering through the world. And that's going to be compounded by life experiences by the time they show up at our door. Absolutely. Just the systemic racism and inequality that Black people face yeah. is actually quantified, right? There's data that shows. And we, we've we talked on this show with other guests about, you know, kids being stopped on the street and carted, which was a system that was here in Toronto. Yeah. Kids being afraid to actually, looking at the police, thinking they are going to be harassed because the data shows that they were harassed, right? Right. So these are these are realities, not just I'm feeling like I'm being harassed. Exactly. And how many times are we constantly with social media being bombarded with images of those things taking place? People are recording those incidences so much more than we used to. So we're consistently receiving vicarious trauma through these interactions because you see that and you think, oh, well, I don't want that to happen to me. And so your guard is up when you're interacting in the world. And so you're definitely right. It's not a feeling. It's a definite <laughs> fact. It's happening. And that causes trauma for somebody. And sometimes you're so entrenched in it, you don't even realize how much it's affected your ability to think big about yourself. I often say the biggest challenge we have at sea is for us to undo the lie that's been told to our young people about them. Because everyone is telling them, you know, they belong in all of these statistics that are not reflective of who they are as people and their talents and their brilliance. They're not being reinforced by positive stereotypes and being told that they can be whatever they want to be and whoever they want to be. And that is traumatizing. And we don't realize how people internalize that as they're navigating. And so we at Sea have full-time psychotherapists on staff to be able to unpack that for some people because sometimes people just are stuck and they don't know why. Like, they're just like, I just don't think I can do it. And they will be the most brilliant young people who have like the most talents that most of us would like wish we had, but they just cannot wrap their minds around them being worthy enough to be able to accomplish something. This is the part we're talking about that we need to get into. And this is where you come in to be I guess, a bridge to change that. Yeah, completely. And a lot of the young people we work with have academic trauma. I cannot explain to you how many young people who are just very brilliant writers are afraid to write because they've been told that they're not good. I have one young woman who has three self-published books where when she was in school, people were telling her that she was not a good writer, but she's an amazing poet. And so these are examples to tell you that the courage that it took for that one young woman 
to be able to be like, "Mm, no, I actually think that I'm greater than this. And I'm going to tap into that. That takes a resilience that not everybody has. And so when you're just trying to be a kid, really, like you're think you're talking, we're talking about teenagers. Yes. yes, Right. Like when you're just trying to be a kid, which is a privilege that most children have, you now have to be faced with like being 10 times better, 10 times harder, 10 times more resilient to break these barriers that really just don't need to exist, you know? And so we really try and work with young people to help them understand that the society that we're living in is not okay. Right. And to be able to help them identify that. And that kind of moves into the third piece, which is a culturally relevant curriculum. So everything that we do is in the context of being black centered around that identity. So whether you're a newcomer, a third generation, you're African Caribbean, we center all of our programming around Black identity and what that looks like. Because oftentimes we experience anti-Black racism and we don't even have a name or a tangible tool to pull out. So I'll use some examples. That'd be great. When we talk about code switching, you know, when you're at work and you see that everybody loves Sally, okay? Sally is, you know, a white woman who works at your job and she, everyone loves her. And you think wildly different from her and you already are. And as a young person entering into the workplace, you're probably the only person that looks like you. And you're thinking, okay, like I really have to walk on eggshells here and be careful. And so everyone loves Sally. So I just behave like Sally. Sally, you know, says corny jokes. I'm going (laughs) to say corny jokes or whatever the case is. Um, Or when she has a suggestion, I might not feel inclined to speak up if I disagree. And so we all try and pretend like the status quo that we think is appropriate in the workplace. And so half the time we don't even notice that that's what's taking place. And so we try and explain to young people like, well, why, why are you trying to behave like Sally and not a gappy in my case? Like, why would I not want to be myself? What is it about me that I feel that won't be palatable for them? Right. And I think black professionals oftentimes have to deal with the code switching and trying to balance the fact that most of us can't bring our entire selves to Mm -hmm. the work, but at least being able to bring a part of us to the work so that we're staying true to ourselves and also being able to provide young people with some tools in their tool belt where when you are identifying that, what's really at risk here? Is it that you don't feel like you'll be heard? Do you not feel that what you have to say is valid? And exercising some tools that would be able to exercise them speaking up or providing feedback or in a way in a contained space with us so that they can test it out so that if they do come up against that in the workplace, they'll be able to have some tools in their tool belt to bring out and be able to address. Which is important, of course, you know, again, through a lot of research and there's data out there that others have published and spoken about in articles about, let's say, Black women specifically in the workforce and, and, you know, their Black identity and their cultural identity and how they that translates with their hair and their clothing and the brightness, maybe the way that they like to look and present themselves and in terms of their blackness and their black identity and how those traditionally have had negative repercussions, right, of fitting in. We look at labor gaps in the market and we try and train young people in those niche markets because there's skill gaps in this country. And at that point, it doesn't matter if the young person is Black, Asian, whatever. That's a skill that this country needs, and it needs to be filled immediately. And so you got to look at what skill set someone brings to the table and not what they look like, because if we paid more attention to that, we'd probably be much more further along as a country. Exactly, exactly. Well, I want to get into more of your 
programs and what you do. Yeah. And I know obviously you're a nonprofit and you're funded. And I know in 2021, the NBA uh, Foundation granted over $500,000 to your organization. So I want to learn more about that. So on the other side of the break, we're going to come back with Agapi and talk about how they fund the organization and how that translates into programs that have impact. We'll be right back. Hey everyone, if you've listened to season one of Black and White, you know that my amazing guests and I have often discussed the wealth gap issue that persists between the BIPOC and non-BIPOC communities. Disadvantage of opportunity caused in part by wealth inequalities is something I know firsthand as a black man who started out in life from challenging circumstances. More than 10 years ago, I turned to Andrew Shepard and his team at Flatiron Wealth Management to help me set a course for a better financial future for my family by setting tangible financial goals and putting place informed investment strategies. At that time, Andrew and his team reviewed my needs, which included long-term planning for the eventual retirement I envisioned, and making sure we had a safety net in place in case things went wrong along the way. Most importantly, Andrew heard me when I told him that priority number one was to secure a better future for my kids, one which would see them have as many opportunities as possible. Through a collaborative process, the Flatiron team recommended a strategy for my kids, which included a savings plan, partly anchored in a governmental educational savings program, combined with a participatory insurance product that would allow my kids to have millions of dollars of life insurance coverage, paid for in 20 years at the lowest cost possible. Surprising to me, this plan would also enable my kids to borrow from the insurance policy to pay for college, to put a down payment on a house, or to invest in a business. Key foundational pillars to building generational wealth. It's truly been an amazing 10 years with Flatiron. I've seen the direct benefit of their financial management services. Positive forward momentum realized year after year. If you're in need of solid financial management advisory services, Give Andrew and his team at Flatiron a call. You'll be happy you did. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome back to Black and White with my amazing guest, Agapi Jasese from the Career Empowerment Education C Center for Young Black Professionals. Agapi, before the break, I was just mentioning about a grant that you received from the National Basketball League Foundation of uh, $500,000. I believe that was last year or the year before. It's the first such grant in Canada. Congratulations. So yes, that was really exciting. Thank yes, you. It's a big commitment. So I'd like to to just jump up that and just talk about what these types of investments mean and where the types of partnerships that you have, and then how that translates into funding the programs 
and how that creates impact and success. Yeah. So very grateful to the MBA Foundation for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, they're the MBA Foundation. So it was like really exciting. Uh, and I think a lot of our young people could connect with that that gift. Did Drake uh, come and give you the check? Did Unfortunately they- not. But if he's listening, you know, we're always open for a visit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the MBA Foundation really allowed us some wiggle room to start to explore what expansion can look like for the organization, which we've been able to do in Montreal. And so they've actually renewed that commitment and with a $1.5 million investment over the next two years into C. Congratulations. Thank you. And I think funding opportunities like that really allow us to be innovative and really think outside of the box and think big, which is exactly what we tell our young people to do. But I'm sure you know in the sector, resources can be scarce. And so sometimes we're really just like, let's just do what we know. And and I think one of the things that we do really well and what we're continuing to improve on, of course, is what we call strategic partnerships. We really believe that community, government, and corporations can work collectively together to find solutions for social change, particularly with workforce development and the work that we're doing, and it be mutually beneficial for all three parties. Canada is facing a severe labor gap in this country that's either going to be filled by young people or immigrants, not even or and immigrants. In Canada, I believe the latest statistics is we have one million, one million yeah. vacant opportunities, jobs. And yeah. one of the things that the government of Canada has now called for starting this year is to allow for 1.5 million immigrants to come into Canada over the next three years to try to address this. But it's a good story that there's jobs. It's not a good story because it's not good that there's so many vacant jobs and that it impacts the economy and so forth. Exactly. And literally, the mission of our organization is for us to create an economy where Black youth can become financially prosperous, live high quality lives and contribute to the advancement of Canada. And so we believe that Of course, immigration is going to help that, but also there are young people who are ready and willing to work now and fill these labor gaps. And all they need is an opportunity to be skilled up to be able to do that. And so what we focus on are labor gaps in the Canadian market. We do programming in five specific industries, entertainment, social services, trades, information technology, and finance. And those are the five industries that we focus in. And then we try and hone in on niche markets where there are very, very large labor gaps. And we believe that the way that most of our programs work is we bring a corporation from that industry to the table in hopes that they can hire our young people and also fund some of the program. And then we also look to government to be able to support us with funding, because at the end of the day, this is going to feed into the Canadian economy. And we, on average, look at how much it costs to serve a young person from our programs. And we work with young people up to two years past their graduation. From a government standpoint, it's a 15 thousand dollar investment in a young person, which on average, most of our young people start their salary range between forty five and fifty thousand dollars a year. You're going to make that back in your income tax within the first year of their employment. Right. Can you give us an example of, uh, you know, you said some of the very big labor gaps. Would that be like the services industry? Would that be an area or give it you give us an, an example? So uh, I'll use our VFX. So that sits under entertainment, but also information technology. So they yeah. kind of uh, straddle. So VFX is kind of creating explosions that are not there after green screens, putting yeah. people and all the stuff that happens around that. 
Yeah. So in the post, like as an edit. And so we had approached an organization called Spin VFX with our partners at Woodgreen because they said that they had tapped out of the Canadian market. There were a very limited amount of people who knew how to use a particular program called Nuke that allows you to create this. So they were going south of the border and spending a whole lot more money. And so we said, if you could hire an entire cohort, like what would that number be if they were all brilliant and amazing? How many people could you hire? They said we could hire 12. And so we ended up recruiting a cohort of 12 young people. They committed to hiring them at the end if they were all brilliant and that we also built the curriculum with them. So we work closely with Humber College who has an actual diploma program for this type of program. Okay. And we also work with Spin VFX to make it as realistic as possible for the workplace that they would be entering into. And so we worked on that. At the end of the program, 11 of those young people were offered full-time employment. And so this is now probably three years later from that initial pilot. We've ran that program five times after that and had different partners involved. And so that is a prime example of, uh, and that was also funded by the Black Youth Action Plan from the Ontario government. So the Ontario government had investment the corporation had investment and us as community came to the table to create the pool. What a great example. And and this is what we're talking about, right? You have to create the pool of talent and then give them access. Totally. Because the thing that we often see when we have this conversation about DNI is employers are like, well, we put a big sign in the middle of the community saying <laughs> that we were hiring and just like nobody showed up. And it's like, okay, that's like going on the street and being like, do you want to come to my house for dinner? I don't know you. I don't know anything about you. I didn't even know that you existed until you just showed up on this street. And so corporations really need to do a better job of investing dollars in the training piece. It's not just expecting people to show up ready to work and you have no existing relationship with these communities. You have to be able to go in there, skill them up. And at times, sometimes that might be a 10-year strategy where you're reaching young people, particularly if it's a very skilled industry where you need a degree or a specialization, then you need to reach young people when they're in high school. You need to recruit them there, work with them, help them with their scholarships to get through school, and then, you know, recruit them as soon as they graduate or before they graduate. It takes investment time to make sure that that happens. You're speaking my language. This is a uh, <laughs> so number of things I, I love about your organization and the work that you do. But first, I like the focus on, you know, young people, right? 14. Yeah. So you said something earlier in the show that that really resonated with me. And I know this may be hard for some people to believe, but there are so many careers. It doesn't matter if it's in science or entertainment and media that youth, Black youth, and other Indigenous youth and people of color youth, they wouldn't even have a clue that those industries exist. Totally. Right? That there is such a job as an insurance appraiser. Yeah. We run an insurance <laughs> underwriter program. Like, I didn't even know what that was until we started running it. But this is what I'm saying. <laughs> if you don't see it, no one around you does these roles, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you expose potential passion careers to exactly. young people, organizations. And this is where I talk about corporations need to go deeper and yes. going deeper in terms of creating this talent pipeline. And you just said it. Sometimes it, you can probably have some shortcuts working with community organizations like yours who can work with, with young people and programs and, and government and actually business to create this pipeline, you know, of training post high school and get them into a real job. So that's one way. But 
there's a lot of work just to inform and educate that this is actually a possibility. So how do you ensure sustainability of what you're doing? At the end of the day, yes, we are a registered charity, but this is a business case for this nation. It's not only about Black youth. When Black youth win, when they come through our programs and they end up in starting their careers, the entire nation wins there because it's fueling our economy. And so I believe sustainability, number one, comes from people supporting us. People like the MBA Foundation, the Hudson's Bay Foundation, who have really stepped up and really believed in the vision that we have. That is clearly what's going to sustain us. Government, corporations, foundations coming together and creating this ecosystem around our young people is what is going to sustain us. And our hope is that, you know, we've been around for 10 years. We have so many success stories and our hope is that our and our young people continuously come back and fuel this. But as we start to look at where we want to go nationally, we've expanded to Montreal and we now want to expand across the country. And I think sustainability really is people seeing the value in and the need and the urgency in filling these labor gaps that we see in this country in order for all of us to reach the Canadian dream. Exciting. You know, now you have a vision to scale up nationwide. You know, you've had impact on hundreds of young people, but then you're going, oh, this works. Why can't we do it for thousands, tens of thousands? Totally. This is me. You're much going like, like, let's go, right? And, you know, you hear this phrase like, okay, well, hold on, take your time. You know, it's just like, no, no, let's go now. Well, the beauty of our expansion is within the GTA alone, there are over 200 Black-led, black focus and Black-serving organizations. And a lot of them are grassroots organizations. And so our approach to expansion is not for us to plant seeds across the country. Our plan is to work, and we have eight organizations across the country that are grassroots or emerging organizations that really just need the tools. They need the curriculum. They need the model to be able to shape it after and the support to be able to help with fundraising and things like that. But the young people are there. And a lot of them are providing, you know, community safety, getting them off the streets, doing something that is productive. And so what we want to do is just be able to partner with those organizations because we don't know what it's like to be a Black youth in Nova Scotia. But those organizations, they know. They've been on the ground. They're doing the work. And we have 10 years of experience of continuously tweaking. And so we really just want to be able to bring our model across the country and empower those organizations to be able to adopt it. So we want to draw on the strength of the Black community that's already taking place. And that has been successful for us uh, in Montreal, which is a very different narrative and a very different climate. Um, And we've done that in the entertainment industry specifically. And just to also kind of speak to what you were talking about earlier, like we run about six programs in the entertainment industry. One is production accounting, which is something the most sought after role, but folks enter into it and they're just like, wow. And we focus on jobs that are below the, there's what they call above the line, which are the more glamorous, like the directors, the producers. ADs, yeah, the assistant ADs. directors, all those exactly. people. Exactly. Yes. And then there are the jobs that are below the line, which is what enables those folks to do their job well. And that's like the set designers, the lighting and grip people, the production accountants, the folks that kind of make everything happen. And so we run most of our programs for below the line and we have partnerships with all of the unions around that. But I simply say that to say, you know, there's so many things that we just don't know. And that includes those 
organizations that maybe don't have the infrastructure or the capacity to do the research around labor gaps and make the partnerships. But most of the corporations that we're working with are national organizations that, you know, we've ran two or three cohorts in the GTA. And there's only so many young people you can, you know, hire in one particular location, of course. but they have branches all across the country that also uh, need the same type of support. And so that's the approach that we want to take to expansion. It, it's exciting. It's scary, but I believe in what we have here. And I think that it will really benefit the nation at large. Absolutely. Absolutely. So mostly a very positive message in regards to your your organization's success in engaging government and engaging uh, corporations, engaging both from a fundraising, but uh, uh, really going deeper than that in terms of the end to end process of getting youth scaled up and actually into opportunities and and where their careers are starting or elevated, which is very exciting. But we know, you know, Agape, you and I have talked about that. We know that that's not the whole story. Oh, no, not at all. It's not the whole story. So (laughs) tell me from your perspective, where you see, you know, we talked about Liga, but where we see gaps in action and change that oh. you you think that we need a lot more focus and a lot more faster action to remedy these things. Can you share that with me, us a little bit? Oh, I'll give you a very clear example. In 2020, when COVID hit, we were in a very tough place as an organization because we're like, can we even continue on? Like what's going on? Nobody knew what was what. And then the George Floyd awakening took place and we had, we went from not knowing what's going to happen to like an overwhelming amount of support. And so here we are like two years later and I can tell you that maybe 5% of those supporters have returned. And that was not from a lack of asking again, right? Yes. And so I think what we're seeing is we were in existence before George Floyd. We're in existence after George Floyd and the problem still remains the same. Mm -hmm. And so this performative behavior, particularly from corporations, is actually very dangerous because you've set up organizations to think that they can rely on you and that your word was that you were in it for the long haul. And that just wasn't necessarily true. And so there are very few who have stayed alongside us and continued to support us and built relationship. But the one thing that I definitely will say for folks particularly corporations that want to engage in this work is this work takes time and money. It's not something that you can just like, you know, throw a check on it and be like, okay, well, we've done our part is social justice, not all, you know, solved. It doesn't work that way, particularly with our communities. We are accustomed to, uh, to be honest, I think prior to this, accustomed to being ignored. And so now I feel like we've gotten some attention. And I think now we're resembling a a dangerous resemblance of, you know, how indigenous communities often feel, which is a series of broken promises and, you know, Mm -hmm. the back and forth. And I don't think that that's a healthy relationship for us to be developing with people who want to be our allies. Allyship takes time, money, investment. And I would suggest when folks are approaching organizations to see how they can support, to actually listen to the organizations about what they can do and come with an investment, like asking how your staff can come and speak with young people is great, right? But there's only so many panel discussions. And what we need is real investment. We need you to put your dollars and your action in terms of relationship, asking us what it is that we need 
not prescribing where you would like things to go because we know our communities best. We've been doing this work before you showed up and will continue even if you decide to leave. But there is a very large gap in disconnect in terms of corporate stewardship and what that looks like for organizations. And I think that people are forgetting the fact that it is a two-way street. It's a relationship and that it's not a dictation. Well, this is this is why, again, I'm a big advocate of going deeper. So for example, I've talked to lots of people who are in uh, senior level EDI roles with big organizations and stuff, and they're working hard and they're They've got some support and stuff, but it always gets back to strategy as well, right? Yeah. Which is, and you know, I'm a strategist by trade. That's what, you know, I've been doing for the last 30 years. And I would say like you, the strategy needs, if you're going to be engaging a group because you want to achieve objectives together, in this case, more diversity, more inclusion in a way that's authentic and genuine and actually moves the ball, you need to engage with those communities communities, yeah. community groups, and formulate the strategy together, right? Yeah, because they're your stakeholder. <laughs> exactly. You got <laughs> You can't just go, oh, this is what we want to do, and we're going to do it, and then we'll go and find an organization that wants to do it with us. No, 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 no. Go, <laughs> go work with C and say, yeah. listen, what do you do well? How does this connect to our overall objective of diversity? Obviously, talent pool, training, yeah. matching opportunity gaps that they may have now and in the future in their organizations. Then you build a real program. Totally. Right? And this may require doing it with multiple organizations for different reasons. Right? And it's a lot of work. It is a lot of work. But this is where strategy comes in. But then if you put in the work and the effort and actually really engage it deep and do it in a collaborative way, I think that's where you end up with a very good strategy that is actually well thought through from the community all the way up. And then you're more likely to have success, right? Totally. And back to what you said, and then you have to continue supporting it. Exactly. A selfish part of folks that the end goal is for you to, you know, be like, oh, wow, that so-and-so corporation is just like so generous and so awesome. I would take the same approach that I do with our programming at sea, which is I'm not overly concerned about where we're going to get the funding from. I need to make sure that the program that I have at this moment in time is so great and is sought after and is what the young people want. I do my due diligence. I create a a plan and a program that I know is going to work. And then I go out and say, hey, look, I have this great thing. Who's interested? And so if you come together with community and create a partnership that's strong and is going to work and is informed, then the round of applause afterwards is going to happen because you're going to be able to make something that is impactful and it's going to be able to be seen. And so I think people should think about that when they're approaching this. And we know from the data that uh, organizations that make those commitments, stick to it, go deeper, and are are truly living diversity and inclusion, it shows up, there's a business case to be made in terms of they're performing better than other corporations and they're valued more than other corporations. So I always make that case. It's like, because at the end of the day, they're still corporations, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) Right? For sure. So so you need to just understand that, that they still need to make the business case because their fiduciary responsibility is to the shareholder, (laughs) right? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Right? And we want a business case too. Yeah. You know, like we we have to make a business case too. funders as well. So, well, you're definitely doing that and more. And so I always like to leave it on a positive note. Yeah. And I know we've talked about some positive stories 
We've talked about the broader realities of Canada, that there's still much more to do. You know, I, I personally think since the murder of George Floyd and the, the reckoning on race that we have seen progress, we've seen definitely a huge rise in awareness, which is good. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do on truth and reconciliation, which I love that approach from uh, Indigenous people in terms of the way, and, and I agree that you have to acknowledge the truths of the past and today, reconcile before you can get to the action. Yeah. But what makes you optimistic today about where you are and your organization and what it looks like going forward? I think we have amazing supporters that have done the work, built the relationship, have asked the right questions, and like we have come to this place because of that. And I think uh, that keeps me very optimistic that we have really amazing partners in this. Um, our young people, our young people are so brilliant. And as much as we can talk about how great C is as an organization, we really are nothing without them. If they don't show up and they don't put in the work and they don't really focus on what their goals are, then there really is no us. And so what really motivates me is just the brilliance of them and the fact that they can do whatever it is that they put their minds to. I often listen to some of what we call power stories at C and we try and take people's life experiences and turn the maybe some of their trauma into what we call a power story and something that's powerful and what makes them amazing and great. And so when I listen to some of the young people's power stories and where they're coming from, I would be wasting my purpose on this earth if I did not put my all into what I was doing. And so they really motivate me. And I also think since in the last couple of years, we have shifted the conversation. People are understanding that this work is important and people are willing to put in the time and the effort to be able to do that. I mean, we talk about kind of what the gaps are and that's always going to be the case. But for the most part, I truly believe in this country and I truly believe that everyone wants to see everyone else win. And I believe that we understand the concept of uh, Ubuntu, which is I am because you are. And I really, that's what makes me optimistic. I think that as a nation, we can live up to the reputation that, you know, we have at a national stage. And I think that we're going to get there. And I feel like if I don't think that, then <laughs> I wouldn't be here. All right. Thank you for that. We'll end on that very positive note. Thank you very much, Agapi. I really appreciate your time. and. Continue to be very impressed by the work that you and your team are doing and the energy you're infusing to bring about uh, real change. Thank you again to Agapi Gisese, the Executive Director of the Careers Empowerment Education, C, Center for Young Black Professionals. To learn more about this amazing organization, please visit their website at ceetoronto.org. Agapi, let's speak soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Black and White. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and take the time to rate our show. Black and White is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to my producer, sound designer, and engineer, Noah Fouts, and our executive producer, David Allen Moss. A reminder that my book, Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the path to change, is available at your favorite bookstores across the U.S. and Canada, and online at Amazon and Indigo Chapters. I'm Stephen Dorsey, reminding all of us that we can all be better, do better, so that eventually we can all live better together.
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.